We're in the book of Revelation, chapter 20, the first 10 verses of chapter 20, page 1040 in your pew Bible, Revelation chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Well, let us ask for God's blessing upon his word preached. O Lord, we thank you for your word and ask that it will be to us a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our pathway, where there is a lot of ambiguity and confusion for many over these words. We pray that they will be clear and compelling in terms of Christ and his people. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. I received a package yesterday, Amazon package, with a book in which isn't ordinarily a surprising thing, but it was to me because I hadn't ordered recently any books. And the book, as uh, I open the package, is called It's the Way You Say It, uh, Becoming Articulate, Well-Spoken, and Clear. And uh, somebody in our congregation sent me that book. Uh, He's not here this morning. He came to the earlier service. His name is AJ. And he left a note Uh, that he got me this book. Now, if you take that story in the abstract without context, you could read into it a whole host of things, could you not? And some of you already did that. What kind of person sends a pastor a book on how to be more eloquent? Well, if the pastor's not very eloquent, it might be a very good gift, I would say. And... Maybe he just felt like I could use an extra 10% 
in my uh, eloquence gifts. I don't know. But when you understand a little bit of the context, what this actually arose from was something that to me was a little bit painful and funny. You see, I gave a speech or a talk to uh, Brazilian students at a seminary in Sao Paulo that was put on YouTube and streamed through Brazil. And as I gave this talk a few weeks ago, I would say a sentence, it would be translated into Portuguese, and it would go on uh, like that. And uh, I asked the president of the seminary in Sao Paulo a few weeks after, so how did the conference go? And he says, oh, very well. There were thousands of people who ended up tuning in over the course of the conference. And he said, very well. And then he said in the WhatsApp message, I have told students the following. You're going to like this. Mark Jones is not very eloquent, but he has impressive depth. And I have to be honest, that was like... I didn't hear anything positive there. All I heard was, <laughs> I am not very eloquent. I've been living now since that WhatsApp message with this idea now. I'm not very eloquent. I'm lacking eloquence. And, you know, I didn't marry my wife for one reason or another. There are many reasons. And one is she has a habit of, of defending me and encouraging me when I need it most. And she said, well, probably what he means because of the Portuguese and all that is, you know, Brazilians, they ramble on and on and on and they preach too long, these Brazilians. You're very concise, you know, and what he probably meant is Mark doesn't talk very long, but there's a lot of depth in the little that he does say. So I'm going with that, by the way. <laughs> so I sent that to AJ because I thought he'd find it funny. And so he sends me this book. The point is, the book coming in the mail has a context. The context is, I hope, it's a bit of a joke, quite funny joke, based upon something else. And then in that, there is a word that is being disputed, at least in my immediate household, as to its intended meaning. When you get to the book of Revelation, you have to remember there is a context to everything. And there are words where you don't just say, this is what it says, but you have to understand, what does it mean? And that's absolutely crucial, because you have not even a word, although it is a word, where we get the uh, chiliasm, uh, was the word for thousand. And uh, you have this word, thousand years, in Revelation 20. This is where it occurs in the Bible. And what has ended up happening is people have built elaborate systems of theology based upon the occurrence of a number in a book that is highly symbolic. And this thousand years has become the test of such orthodoxy that you can drive down many streets in America and see on church buildings outdoors pre-tribulation rapture, this, that, post-tribulation rapture church, and that church is defined by their adherence to a certain view of Revelation chapter 20. In fact, sometimes membership can be uh, determined by your view of these matters. Now, what's interesting is when you look at a thousand years, you have to remember the context of the book of Revelation as well as the context of the Scriptures. So we are talking about a consistently figurative book with numbers. Clearly, 
12, 7, 12 times 12, 144,000. These are ways of expressing theological truth in a symbolic manner. And when you look at the context of chapter 20, there is already a lot of figurative language that is being used. So, for example, there's the talk of a chain, or the abyss, or dragon, serpent, locked, sealed, beast. When you think of Satan being a serpent, or is he a dragon? Is he a dragon serpent? Is he a spirit? In which case, How do you attach a chain to a spirit? And you start to look at the language that's used here is clearly trying to convey truths using various images. But then also, you will find that the number 1,000 has a predominantly figurative understanding, not just in the book of Revelation, I think, chapter 20, but also in the rest of the Scriptures. So, for example, in Psalm chapter 50, God owns the cattle on how many hills? 999? No, a thousand. But then is the thousand and one hill ours? Do we say, Lord, you get a thousand hills? You can pick them even. We're generous people. After that, we're claiming everything else. Of course not. It's a way of saying that of every hill there is, God owns owns the cattle. It all belongs to him. Or another example in Psalm 90, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day, which Peter picks up on that language to speak of God. Now, do we take that literalistically so that after a thousand years, that really is a day in God's life? So a million years, well, you've got a thousand days in God's life and he's getting older. He's just on a different time scale. The answer is, it's trying to convey God being eternal. That God who is outside of time, you could say a day is like 10 billion years and 10 billion years is like a day and you have the same intended meaning. Because really, God is not bound to time like we are. So thousand will often be used to describe a period of time that is perfect and complete, just like God's period of time in His being is perfect and complete because He is without time. So we look at the following and we keep these principles in mind. In the first three verses, you have John describing what I call the binding of the strong man. And you'll understand how that uh, makes sense as we go through. So John sees an angel coming down from heaven and he holds in his hand the key to the bottomless pit. So again, is there like a door and an actual key that opens up a door and then you go down to a bottomless pit? But how can a pit be bottomless if there's no bottom? Does that not render it not a pit? So just try to flow with John's language and intended meaning. And there's a great chain. And... He seizes the dragon, and there's a fourfold description of the dragon. A dragon, that ancient serpent, two, who is the devil, three, and Satan. Fourfold description of him, and bound him for a thousand years. And then he was thrown into a pit, and it was sealed over him that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. Now the question is, when did the binding of Satan actually take place? Is this a future event, or did it already happen? And if it already happened, when did it happen? 
Now, any reader of the New Testament will know that when Jesus Christ came to earth, he bound Satan. In fact, his temptation was the beginning of this binding of Satan. When Satan confronted Jesus in the wilderness, Jesus overcame the devil. He overcame the devil and showed that he would be a formidable foe for the devil and that the devil's eternal destiny was basically written when he could not overthrow Christ in the temptation. But then you keep on reading and you go to Matthew's gospel, for example, Matthew chapter 12, and what you find is that Christ is casting out demons. He is casting out demons. He makes the mute to speak. He makes the blind to see. And the Pharisees have a certain conclusion. Their conclusion is he casts out demons by the power of Beelzebub. To which Christ responds, how can Satan stand against himself? How can a kingdom divided stand against itself? If I cast out demons by the power of demons, Satan, the kingdom cannot stand. But if by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, I cast out demons, you will know, verse 28, that the kingdom of God has come upon you. And then in verse 29, oh, come on now, you need to look. Come on, open up your Bibles. I could just sense you thought I was just talking like I knew what I was talking about. Well, it's here. You can even tell whether I did justice to the context. Verse 29, after he has confessed that he is doing this by the power of the Spirit, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? When was Satan bound? Satan was bound when Christ came to earth in his temptation, in his miracles and casting out demons and especially in his death and resurrection, Satan has been bound. So if you understand that so far, it helps you to understand now how this will unfold. Because he is bound so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. That's in verse 3 of chapter 20. Until the thousand years, the period of time that God has determined, were ended. Why is this important? Satan's binding is essential for the spread of the gospel. That is why in Matthew 28, Jesus will say, go into all nations. Why? Because all nations have now been handed over to Christ. Satan cannot deceive them absolutely, as he did in the Old Testament. You see, there's a bit of a shift, isn't there? From Joshua going into the promised land and wiping out nations. Now it is, go into the world and save the nations. Because Satan has been bound. But there's also another important truth concerning the saints who are in glory in verses 4 to 6. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now, a number of points are going to be important for you to understand. The first is, who's actually reigning with Christ for this period of time that I believe is 
symbolically given to us by the thousand years? And the answer seems to me to be those saints who have died for faithful witness in this world, those saints who are now in glory. Since the time of Christ's resurrection to his return, any saint who has faithfully persevered amidst persecution, which is symbolized by maybe their head uh, being cut off as representative of persecution, anyone who is now with Christ in glory. And the reason I say that is because anytime you read of thrones in the book of Revelation, it is always in heaven. So they are in heaven. And notice they are souls because they are disembodied now. After you die, you go to be with the Lord. You are a soul reigning in heaven with authority. What is more... There are different ways of speaking about resurrection life. And this will become very important. Notice they share in the first resurrection. End of verse 5. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. That is when the judgment will happen between the righteous and the unrighteous and they will be bodily raised to be judged. But This is the first resurrection. And the question we have to now answer is, if these are saints reigning with Christ in glory, what is the first resurrection? And the first resurrection is very simply this. Christ's resurrection and all that that means. Now, I know this is hard to understand, but this passage is not easy to understand. It's absolutely vital for you to understand that in the first century, Jewish people, Pharisees especially, by and large, believed that one day God was going to raise the dead bodily. The Sadducees denied that. That's why they had fights. That's why Paul appeals to that in the midst of Pharisees and Sadducees to get them to fight each other. But there's going to be this resurrection one day. The shocking thing about the Christian faith is this. Not that there will be a bodily resurrection in the future, but that God has brought the future into the present with Christ Jesus. That when Christ died, God's people died. When Christ was raised, God's people were raised. So that the first resurrection is a spiritual resurrection of God's people. So what does Jesus say in John chapter 5 verse 24? He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, not will one day have eternal life, has eternal life, presently has life. And life, zoe, and resurrection, anastasis, in the Greek, are interchangeably used like they are in Romans chapter 6 that we read earlier. He does not come into judgment because the judgment has fallen on Christ in his death, but has passed from death to life. That is the resurrection, the one you partake of when you believe. So what does Paul say to the Colossians in chapter 3? Since one day in the future you are going to be raised with Christ? No. Since there's a future resurrection of the dead? No. Since you have been raised with Christ, it is a present reality. You have been raised with Christ. Set your minds on things above. When you are born again into a living hope, you have been raised as it were. You have experienced the first 
resurrection. And the second death in verse 6 cannot touch us, cannot harm us. Where, O death, is thy sting? Where, O grave, is thy victory? It is gone. So in verses 4 to 6, you have the reality that God's people who are killed in this life and who have suffered for the faith are now currently reigning with Christ in glory as souls on their thrones. And they are priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. That may end up being 10,000 years. It may end up being 9,000 years, 280 days. I don't know. God knows. But the point is, the period of time it represents is the perfect period of time in which all of God's people will be saved and brought to glory. But then you also have the end of the millennium in verses 7 to 10. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison where he currently is. In an absolute sense, Satan does not have authority over this world, though he still tries to harm this world with his wickedness. And he will come out to deceive the nations. So this is Satan's plan that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And here, my friends, I say this reverently, is the most pathetic battle you can ever imagine. They marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. So the wicked come against God's people, and they've marched to battle. And there's a big battle that's going to take place. And you're on your white horse because you're following the great rider on his white horse. And you are gathered for battle. And you remember Narnia, right? Some of you watch Narnia and you see them gather for the battle. And what happens in Narnia? They actually go to battle, right? There's a fight. It's like the horse with the human body and people are going and the sword's going. There's a little bit of a problem, okay? And I'm going to be delicate with that little bit of a problem. You don't actually do anything in this battle. No, really. They gather against God's people, but then notice verse 9. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. That's why I say it's a pathetic battle. Here they are marching against God's people. Here we are ready to go to battle, and then fire comes down and scorches them. They're done. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever. Now, Revelation chapter 20 is not meant to actually confuse you. It's not meant to be terribly hard to understand. And in fact, if you read 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and begin at verse 5, and you go home and you read from verse 5 to verse 12, you can actually pinpoint verse after verse after verse that actually corresponds with what John is saying in Revelation chapter 20. That there's going to be judgment, that there's going to be fire, that God's people are going to be protected, and God's people will be ultimately glorified. Now, this is the problem. I'm not asking a lot. Is it a lot to go home and read 2 Thessalonians chapter 1? 
verses 5 to 12, and then to go to Revelation chapter 20. Probably, so now I'm going to have to read it because I don't trust some of you. I think some will, but some of you will go home and you'll get distracted and Oprah will come on and the microwave will start and then, then you'll lose Second Thessalonians. So we've got to go there now. Come on, open your Bibles. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Again, precisely what John is talking about. Those who suffered belong to the kingdom of God on their thrones. Since indeed God considered it just to repay with affliction those who afflicted you. The dragon will be judged and thrown into the bottomless pit, the lake of fire with burning sulfur. And to grant relief, the saints reigning in glory to you who are afflicted as well as to all of us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, what? In flaming fire, just like verse 9. Inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints. That day when his saints will be glorified and they will receive their resurrection bodies and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was to be believed. Same thing. No different. Now, just a few points of application before we close. The first is this. I want you to just take a moment to think about how you can actually think of someone whom you have loved who has died in the Lord, and you can read this, and you can think of the fact that they are upon a throne from verse 4, and that they have been given authority to judge, and they are those who reign with Christ currently. They are reigning. They are glorying in the presence of the Lord. They are right now executing, as it were, by their prayers, how long, O Lord, judgment upon the wicked. They are in glory. They are reigning. That is where they are. People whom you love right now, that is where they are. Maybe it was a husband. Maybe it was a wife. Maybe it was a child or a best friend. They are reigning right now. They are not sad. They are not distressed. They have a holy confidence and boldness in the presence of a victorious Savior that all is well and all will be well. But then secondly, if Satan is bound, as I believe that he is, and does not have absolute authority over all the nations, this means we can have confidence to go anywhere in the world with the gospel. That is why Jesus says that in Matthew 28. He doesn't say, well, go here, go here, don't go there. No, go into all nations because Satan is bound. He has been defeated. And it seems to me that this is one of the great missionary texts without being a great missionary text in terms of how we are to think. What are you being promised here? 
you're being promised that no matter where you go, it could be Eritrea, it could be Iran, you've at least got one sermon in you. You've got one sermon at least. And then if that is your only sermon and your last sermon, you will nevertheless not be ultimately harmed because you will be reigning with Christ forever. No one can actually harm you. And I just thought about, you know, what is it that makes people want to give up so much? In fact, tonight after the uh, evening sermon, I'm going to a pastor's house because um, there's this family, Korean family, and their son is uh, very good friends with my son, and uh, he wants to finish his high school uh, in Langley, but the family are moving to Vietnam. And the reason they're moving to Vietnam is because they want to go and be missionaries in Vietnam, and they are Koreans, and they do not speak Vietnamese, but they're going to go to Vietnam, learn Vietnamese, leave their nice house in Langley in a nice neighborhood, with nice school and nice church and nice this and nice that and go to Vietnam. Why would you do that? You've got young children. Think about your young children. Why would you make them learn another language? Why would you take them to another culture? Don't you have work to do here? Why would you do that? Why would you allow your son, whom you love, to go live with another family while you go off to Vietnam? That seems very selfish, doesn't it? But who else is going to go? Who else is going to give up everything here? Who else is going to go in the hope that maybe you'll be able to, through work, and you have to go for work because it's a communist country, you have to go for work reasons, that through your work reasons, maybe at a university you'll be able to speak about the gospel to some university students. And maybe it'll be three students after five years of work But you see, when you read Revelation chapter 20, what you realize is you can go anywhere and to any people and you can know that Satan does not need to have the victory because he is bound and Christ is building his church and Christ will judge the wicked and there is nowhere in the world you cannot go. And you may not need to go to Vietnam, you just need to go down the road and know that Satan is not going to win. But I actually think many of us live our lives without admitting Satan has won like he really has won. Like there are people that we really can't reach. That there are people who won't believe. There's people you've tried with. And Revelation 20 is telling you there is no one who we cannot reach because Satan's authority is limited by the one who conquered him. Crucified in weakness, raised in power. Such power that by his very breath he will destroy the wicked and by fire. But until then, we fight the good fight, knowing that when we fight faithfully to the end, we will reign with him forever and ever. Let's pray. O Lord, we thank you for your word and for the hope of the gospel and for the great missionary enterprise that is ours in Christ Jesus to go into the world and to know that the worst that can happen is in some respects the best that can happen. For we cannot be harmed since we have passed from death to life. Amen.